Welcome to the My Mindful Map Moment. Today, we interview Jessica Simpson, a marriage and family therapy PhD candidate, to discuss emotion regulation, what it is, how parents and their children can develop it, and how it relates to mindfulness. Okay, so let's start with um, having you introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Jessica Simpson. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and a very recent master's degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, So I just graduated this year and I'm about to start a PhD program in the fall in marriage and family therapy as well. Well, I'll also be working to accrue clinical hours towards licensure at the same time. Um, and I just too want to make a note that, um, as we're talking today, I am in no way an expert. So I'll try to give credit where credit is due. Um, one of my main goals is to make some of the research more accessible. Um, and so I'm happy to share experiences and what I've learned along the way. I've spent the last two years in a community mental health agency working with underprivileged, mostly minority and low income families with mental health and relational challenges. So I've done lots of work over the past couple of years with parents and emotion regulation. That's awesome. And that last part is kind of what we want to focus on um, in this particular interview. So can you tell us a little bit about what emotion regulation is? Yeah. So starting with kind of Al, I guess, in the 80s, it started to become a thing. And one of the main researchers or one of the first researchers, her name was Carlin Sarney. And um, she said essentially that emotion regulation or is regulating the experience of emotion by monitoring one's expressive behaviors. And this is something that refers to the dynamic process of emotions influencing other thinking processes. So for example, think about like taking a test when you're feeling nervous and it maybe is harder to pay attention because you're feeling nervous. Um, And then also emotional experience and expression is also influenced by other factors, especially social and cultural rules. So if we go back to that test example, then even though you're feeling nervous, you might not be wanting to take the test, you might be sweating, um, you probably won't run out of the room screaming because that wouldn't be socially appropriate. Um, And so it's this kind of this interplay of emotions and how we express them and how outside factors influence the way that we express these emotions um, to tell us whether it's appropriate or not. And so returning to Sarni's work, what she did is she did an experiment with kids of different ages and she gave them an undesirable gift. So she gave older kids like a toy that would be better for babies. And the experiment was to look and see if kids could act positively. So like smile and say thank you instead of acting upset. And what she found was that it wasn't until kids were about 10 to 11 that they could actually show that positive behavior and kind of mask that disappointment, even if that's what they were feeling on the inside. And so since the 80s, essentially, we found out that emotion regulation, especially in kids, is constantly developing. So toddlers are able to become aware of their distress and take steps to help themselves feel better. So for example, playing with a substitute toy if another toy is taken away or they're told that they can't play with that. And we know now too that even infants display some forms of emotion regulation. And I just wanted to note too that um, there's kind of a balance. So what the research has found is that 
under controlled children are considered low in emotion regulation. So they're impulsive, high in emotional intensity. They become easily frustrated, are prone to reactive aggression. And highly inhibited children exhibit self-control but lack flexibility. So they tend to be socially withdrawn and sad or anxious. And so kids who are optimally regulated are controlled but also flexible. So they are able to adapt to um, coping with their emotions in a in a way that is appropriate. And these kids are relatively popular and socially competent. And so the goal of helping kids develop emotion regulation isn't to prohibit kids from feeling emotions or even acting on emotions, but to help them manage their own emotions in a way that is appropriate and productive and not a way that's going to hurt themselves or others. That makes sense. It seems that um, those skills would definitely have far-reaching impact as well on how an individual is able to integrate with society over Mm -hmm. time. Definitely, yeah. So what are some ways that parents can practice emotion regulation for themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are a number of different ways. I'll go through some of the ideas that I have used with clients, some of the ideas that my clients have found helpful. Um, It's in no way an extensive list, um, but one of the best things I think that parents can start doing is starting to just become in tune with emotions. So as I'm sure you guys know, there's a lot of ways that we can avoid feelings these days. So we have Netflix, we have social media, we have phones where distractions are always um, available. There's food, substances, um, excessive exercise, um, and a ton of other ways that we can essentially avoid feeling. And lots of times we don't realize what we're feeling until it's too late. So we yell at our kid or we say something unkind to our spouse or um, we do something that's hurtful. Um, either to ourselves or someone else. And so one thing that I like to teach parents especially, but also um, parents can later use it with their kids, is um, something that Dan Siegel came up with, and it's called the hand model of the brain. And so it's obviously this would be easier to do in person where I could show you, but I will just kind of tell you to go along with this. So if you put your hand um, in like the number four, and then close your fingers over the top of it so you have a fist with your thumb on the inside. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so if you then look at your hand facing you, you have your wrist, and what the wrist is, is it is the brain stem. That's also referred to the reptilian brain, so it's what monitors our breathing, our heart rate. It basically keeps us alive. And then after we have the reptilian brain, our thumb in there hidden under our fingers is the amygdala. And the amygdala is our emotional brain. So it's in charge of feelings. It's in charge of that fight or flight or freeze reflex. And then we also have the four fingers that cover the the thumb. And this is the cerebral cortex or the thinking brain. And so what happens is that when we are leading with our emotional brain, we often don't respond well. And essentially what happens is that we become escalated. Something happens that tells our brain like, hey, this isn't okay, like you need to go into fight or flight mode. And the cerebellum or the cerebral cortex just goes offline. And so we're all of a sudden, we're not thinking with our thinking brain, we're thinking with our emotional brain. And if you go ahead and just quickly flip those four fingers up, you can see the amygdala or your thumb down there. And what I tell parents and kids is that's when we flip our lid. And we want to try and avoid flipping our lid. Uh, because not a lot of good things happen when we're leading with our emotional brain. 
And so there's a, a number of ways that we can kind of help to get our thinking brain back online. A big one is breathing. And so even just a few minutes, we can remind our brain that we're safe. We don't need to be in fight or flight and we don't need to um, respond with the same way we can tell ourselves, like we can take the time to think, we're safe, we're okay, we can get through this. And there's a number of different breathing techniques. One that I like is called square breathing. And this is a really simple one where you essentially, you can just imagine um, so you'll breathe in and you'll count to four. And when you're breathing in, you'll imagine drawing a line up as a side of a square. You're then going to hold for four and imagine drawing the line over for the top of the square. And then you can breathe out for four and in your head, draw the line down for the other side of the square. And then uh, you'll hold for four again and draw the bottom of the square. And you can do that once. You can do it as many times as you need. And it's a quick thing to just help to really focus on the breathing. The counting helps to keep those stray thoughts out. Um, and so that's a really good technique. Um, but you can experiment with a number of different techniques and find what is helpful for you. I actually think um, I've read about that being part of Navy SEAL training, actually. Mm -hmm. At least some... Some Navy SEAL units actually include that as part of their their training and their their process for making sure that they're able to maintain that they're that they don't flip their lid yeah. when they're in a, in a critical moment when they need to be when they need to have their attention in the the right place. Interesting, right? Yeah, and so I think you know if that's helpful for Navy SEALs, it's probably also very helpful for parents, which is yeah. an equally <laughs> tough job. <laughs> Another thing that is helpful. Um, and kind of getting us back to our thinking brain, which can help us to then, you know, manage our emotions, respond in ways that are appropriate, is just a quick minute for exercise. So even if it's 10 jumping jacks or um, going out for a quick walk, even five or 10 minutes, that can be really useful to just kind of re-temper re where we're at um, and get that thinking brain back online. Um, another thing that is helpful, and I think that sometimes we forget as parents, but something that's helpful is that we can take time, a time out. We can take a time out for ourselves to kind of recoup because when you're a parent, if you are responding to a child that maybe has dumped their cereal out for the fifth day in a row and it's getting really old or who has, um, thrown the last roll of toilet paper in the toilet and you, you know, now you have to go to the store and get toilet paper um, and you're really frustrated. If you respond by flipping your lid, your kids are also going to respond by flipping their lids. And so taking that time out to um, do something that you like, just recenter, breathe, exercise can be really helpful. Another thing that um, if you find maybe this is happening a lot that you're feeling dysregulated is uh, something that I like to work with my clients to put together is, is a self-soothing kit. So essentially it's one item for each of the five senses that is soothing and helps you to feel better. So um, for, for taste, you know, I have them put their favorite, maybe their favorite treat, like a, a, a small candy in there. And for smell, maybe something that's comforting. So for me, that is lemon dish soap because it brings back memories of doing dishes with my grandma when I was a kid. Um, and then just things with the four, the five senses that help just get you to be recentered. 
And so that is really helpful as well. If you find that this is happening a lot, you can just go to your kit and pick one of the things and pull it out. And if that doesn't seem to be working, you can move on to another one. Um, another technique that um, has been helpful, especially if you find that you're feeling a lot of worry or anxiety, is something called progressive muscle relaxation. And so this is a technique that is, it's really simple. And essentially it's going through the muscles or the muscle groups one at a time and tensing them and then relaxing them. And what studies have found is actually that this, this act of physically relaxing our muscles trains our brain to learn how to relax as well. Um, and there's lots of guided meditations um, and different things to kind of, if you want a guided one, you can do, you know, it's, it's helpful too, because you can do it anywhere. You can do it in the car. You can do it, um, I know not very many people are at the office currently, but you can do it in the office. You can do it really anywhere. I think another thing too, is just to take time to practice frequent check-ins with yourself throughout the day, especially if you're starting to feel these big feelings starting to come up. So taking time throughout the day, maybe setting a reminder on your phone to just check in for two or three minutes and to ask yourself, how am I feeling? Am I feeling, um, if you're feeling angry, am I feeling hurt on top of feeling angry? If I continue down this path, what are the consequences? If I choose a different path, what are the consequences? Um, two hours from now, how will I be wishing I've handled the situation? Will this be important a day from now, a week from now? And um, especially with check-ins, but really with anything that we talk about with emotion regulation, the more that you do it, the, the easier and more natural it feels. So it might feel silly the first time or even the fifth or sixth time, um, but like any skill, and that's really what emotion regulation is, it's a skill. And so like with any skill, the more that we practice, the better we get. Um, and so don't give up, you know, the first or the second time and maybe experiment and really try to find what works for you. Something that I like to do with people that kind of helps with a check-in is something that I call the thermometer activity. And this can be done with any feeling, but it's especially helpful if you find yourself feeling angry a lot, um, is essentially um, to print out a picture of a thermometer and mark it, um, mark, make 10 marks on it, one to 10. And, you know, one is calm. It's you're having the best day of your life. You're the most relaxed you've ever been. Um, and 10 is like, you are, your lid has flipped. It's, it's over. Um, and then what are, what's the difference between a one and a two and a two and a three? And then, you know, going all the way up to 10 and having these checks of, oh, now I know that when I'm at a three, I start clenching my jaw. Or when I am at a five, I start getting really hot and don't think as clearly so that you can stop yourself maybe at a six or seven instead of a 10. Um, and if you're maybe not sure, you can ask others, you can ask a partner, you can ask a friend, you know, what, what do you think the signs are when I'm starting to get angry? Um, something that would be really telling if you're really feeling up for it would be to ask your kids, you know, how do you know that mom or dad is starting to be angry? Um, and also, you know, if you find that you are really struggling with emotion regulation, ask for help. It can be really helpful to see a therapist. 
um, I'll, I'll go ahead and put that plug in for therapy. Um, it can be really helpful to learn skills and to also practice skills and have someone to be accountable to. Um, especially if, you know, emotion regulation is a, is a big struggle, a therapist that specializes in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT could be very helpful. There's also groups for DBT. So maybe um, for financial reasons or um, just maybe it's your first time trying therapy, a DBT group can be a really good entrance into kind of this world of um, it's a group of people to learn skills with, to share experiences with, and to be accountable with. And it can be really helpful and productive. Um, if I wish that all schools taught kids DBT skills, which are a lot of the things that I've been talking about today. There's other um, kinds of therapy, too, that can be helpful if you are struggling with consistent negative or self-defeating thoughts. You can look into cognitive behavior therapy. Um, and if you find that you manage to get yourself consistently stuck in painful patterns and situations and, and feel like you're never going to be able to be out of it, get out of it, acceptance and commitment therapy could also be helpful. So there's a lot of tools out there. And I know that right now it maybe is hard, depending on where you are in the country or the world, to make it into a therapist's office. But a lot of therapists are offering um, teletherapy services. And so that might be something that would be helpful to look into as well. You mentioned that you wish that schools would teach this kind of thing. Yes. Especially we happen to be recording this during a pandemic. And I right. think we've, a lot of families have discovered some of these issues, unfortunately, in a very hard time to take care of it. Right. The ideal situation would be that we learn these skills before we're in a situation like this. Right. But seeing as we are in a pandemic, what are some ways that people can practice emotion regulation during life-altering events? So I think a lot of the things that we have talked about currently are now more relevant than ever. I think, too, especially just we need to be taking care of ourselves right now. You know, if if you are a lots of times family can be the biggest stressor. We maybe love our families and they're the ones that stress us out the most because they know us best and they um, they're often able to push those buttons that others aren't able to push. And. And so we are usually more likely to flip our lids when we are tired, hungry, stressed. Um, and so we really need to be, make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And that's going to look different for everyone. But um, some things are to be eating food that's going to be nourishing and balanced and moving our body regularly in ways that we find fulfilling, um, staying hydrated and getting enough sleep and um, this one is really important, I think, but just being gentle with yourself and those around you. You're going to make mistakes. The people are gonna, around you are going to make mistakes. And so um, that's okay. We all make mistakes, especially now when this is a new experience that is probably something that none of us have ever experienced before. Um, and so we're learning. We're learning every day. And so to be gentle and to be forgiving um, and to know that we can repair when we have ruptures, when we make mistakes, and we can move forward. And hopefully they will happen less frequently the more that we practice. And then also just returning to the skills that we talked about, giving a couple of them a try. And just, I think, being persistent. I think it's really easy to get 
overwhelmed and say, oh, I have to do all of these things right now if I'm going to regulate my, my emotions or be mindful or whatever it is. And it's, it's no, it's more the, the slow and steady wins the race of that small, persistent effort day after day that ends up making the biggest differences. So you don't need to, um, you know, meditate for five hours a day or anything like that. The small steps really can make a really big difference. I like that you say that because I think it's it's easy to for me as a parent to want to have a total grasp over all of my emotions before I try to right. my kids mm-hmm. how to do that. You know, I always you can feel really guilty when you when you do miss the boat on on some of that mm-hmm. emotion regulation. Um, but to remember to that it's a slope that's a learning process no matter right. where we are. Right. And I think, too, that something really valuable for kids to see is is parents not necessarily messing up, but making the repair after messing up and and learning that, you know, that we mess up and that's okay, and we can say sorry and we'll try differently next time. And something that I um, I tell the couples that I work with that this comes out of the um, Gottman Institute. I think it's applicable with kids too, is that um, really it's not necessarily the, the conflict that is um, the, the, the biggest thing. We, you can have a couple that is a really high conflict couple and they can be really happy. And it's, it's not because of the conflict, but it's because of the repairs that they are able to make in a, in a real and genuine manner that really resonates with both partners. And I think it's, it's really similar with parent child um, relationships. Um, You know, I I think about my own family and my siblings, and I definitely have like, some siblings that um, know how to really, I remember growing up, like just certain siblings knew how to push my buttons really well, knew how to push my parents buttons really well. Um, And I imagine that everybody has, you know, at least one kid, maybe all of their kids that also can just really get in there and push those buttons like nobody else can. Um, And to be able to, after, you know, an experience that you wish that you would handle differently to be able to go to your child and to make a repair, that's a valuable lesson that they're going to learn and they're going to learn from you. And in other relationships, they will have learned how after you know, a negative experience or a challenge experience in a relationship happens that the relationship can heal and move forward. And that is, I think, one of the most valuable lessons that we can teach our kids. Absolutely. I think that that journey for sure is the kind of the goal with any of that, at least for me as a, someone that tends to be more of a results oriented type of person, mm-hmm. where it's <laughs> like, we're going to get to this destination and then we're going to, you know, move to whatever happens to be next. Um, yeah. So much of this is about making it more of a, a way of life, really, and, yeah. and and making it as something that, that you are rather than necessarily something that you do. Right. I'm curious if there's anything specific about mindfulness that you'd want to relate to emotion regulation that you, if, that you haven't, that you may not have already done. Right. Um, so I have a, a couple of thoughts. I think a lot of times when we we think of mindfulness, we think of, you know, like going on that yoga retreat, or we think of um, monks meditating for hours at a time, or um, maybe that one really like hippy dippy friend that we have um, that that we just feel like it's unattainable. 
Um, and really what you can do with mindfulness is you can find your own flavor of mindfulness of, you know, that one thing that works for you. And maybe um, for some people it is the yoga retreat or it is um, a sound bath or um, a number of other things. But it can also be the really simple things of centering, of breathing, um, of even just, you know, what is going on within me and around me right now in the moment and just that um, being in the moment. And I, I like to talk to my clients. I also do therapy in Spanish. And something that um, I, I like to talk to my clients about is that in Spanish, we talk about like managing emotions. The verb to manage is the same as the verb to drive. And so I like to use an analogy of driving a car. And with um, mindfulness and emotion regulation, like who do you want to be driving the car? Do you want your emotions to be driving the car or do you want to be driving the car? And if um, you want yourself to be driving the car, what are the steps that you need to take so that you're driving the car more often and getting to where you want to go instead of um, going on a crazy, bumpy, maybe painfully long road trip that you, it's not going to get you where you wanted to end up anyway. Um, and there's a number of apps that can be helpful if you wanted to create a regular practice or semi-regular practice. Um, so Calm, Headspace, Insight Timer are some of the apps that um, I know people have found useful. Um, and then just remembering that it's adaptable. There, you know, there's as many ways to practice mindfulness as there are people on this planet because it's not going to look the same for every person because we're all different. I often think that we forget that we know ourselves best and we like to try to turn to other people to tell us how we should be when really uh, something that I think is a really mindful journey is that journey of getting to know ourselves and know how we respond and what works and what doesn't. I, I think that that takes a lot of mindfulness and a lot of attunement. And we definitely live in a world where that there's a lot that, like you said at the beginning, a lot that tries to pull us away from being able to comprehend that about ourselves. You yeah. Know, whether it's technology or whatever else numbs our time to be able to sit with that. Definitely. Yeah. And and I like that you, you don't talk about sitting with it because at times maybe it is uncomfortable to sit with. But the more that we practice sitting with it, the easier and the more toler tolerable it gets. And then it can actually turn into really valuable time. It's kind of interesting running down that line of thinking as well, because each of us trying to find the, you know, the basically finding ourselves as individuals and finding that stillness within ourselves is a very unique and personal journey for everyone. As you say, every, you know, mm -hmm. there are as many different ways to practice mindfulness as there are people on the planet. And, and it's interesting thinking about that relative to, um, to what you might consider either as, you know, more dogmatic or um, the, you know, the, the idea that everyone has their own truth, which is mm -hmm. something that I have a hard time subscribing to on some level. But mm -hmm. I think that when you view it through that lens of everybody having their own subjective experience, that's like, you know, that's uniquely theirs. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and that there are things that are going to be like fixed points, you know, that, that are real, that we interact with, that all of us interact with. But the way mm-hmm. that we internalize that through the lens that we have accrued through our lifetime of experiences is going to be different from someone else's. That, that, that I think lends, at least for me, new light to, you know, the idea of someone having, you know, whatever their truth might be. Right. Because, you know, I think that if, if truth is truth in a general sense, like, you know, there's that aspect. But the way that we approach that truth, I do think, is, is important to respect and, and to have compassion as we're all working to, to come to that understanding of, of who we are and, and where we fit into to the world around us. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's something that I think that when we, when we start to really understand and appreciate our own experiences, we can then lend that to the people around us um, and have more compassion and more empathy for their experiences and wrecking their their experiences just as valid and valuable as their own. What are some ways parents can help their children learn emotion regulation? Yeah, so that is a really good and I think really important question. And um, I can't emphasize enough the importance of play. And um, we, we talk about a lot, especially those of us that do therapy with kids, that um, for kids, really, play is their language. And kids learn a lot of really important things through play. So especially like pretend play, it gives children the opportunity to act out emotional experiences and actually build emotion regulation skills by letting them symbolically create um, kind of big emotions and then negotiate out rules either with themselves or other children or parents um, through, through this kind of play experience. And, and so this is essentially a chance for kids to experiment with emotion regulation in a safe place that doesn't necessarily have as high state consequences as in other settings. Um, and so in one study, actually preschool kids um, were, were looked at for um, emotion regulation and they were observed. And the ones that engaged in pretend play with their parents were actually more often found to have higher ratings of emotion regulation. Um, Another study found that kids who engaged in high levels of play were rated by their moms to have better emotional understanding. Um, And and kind of play and self-regulation go hand in hand. especially with sociodramatic play, kids that really um, do that kind of play are able to learn conflict resolution as, as young as preschool age. And it's so important, um, really, kids to have even, you know, an hour a day, half an hour a day to, of their parents' undivided attention is just, I can't tell you how valuable it is and that opportunity to be able to engage with a parent in play um, is is an experience that kids are getting less and less of today and actually they need more and more of the more complex this world gets and so you know if you're a parent listening to this and please don't beat yourself up i know that you're busy (laughs) um you maybe sometimes really just need a break from your kids 
And, you know, you can start with 15 minutes a day. And that is, it just, it's so valuable. I, I can't express enough just how valuable it is to spend that time playing and engaging in play with your kids. And you don't have to be good at it. That's the thing is maybe imaginary play, it really isn't your flavor of parenting. Um, the important thing is, is that you're there and that you're present and that you're giving your kid the attention and allowing them to work through things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do it. And so really, kids are great at this. Adults were less great at it, but that's okay because our kids are going to be able to kind of carry us through if it's hard or uncomfortable. And if you're great at it, more power to you. One of the really cool things about play too is kids are able to act out situations or impose situations that would maybe be more difficult to do somewhere else. So um, I, this actually comes up because of the um, that patience challenge that has been going around social media of telling their kid, telling your kids that they have to, you know, putting the treat in front of them and then telling them that they have to wait. Um, but one thing is that if that comes from a parent, like you have to wait five minutes before you can have a popsicle, those five minutes could be unbearable, just the worst thing ever. But you'll actually see kids telling a toy or a parent in play or a sibling or a playmate, oh, you have to wait five minutes to have your popsicle. And all of a sudden, that five minute wait in play becomes completely bearable and kids are kind of able to teach their themselves how to um, manage situations that otherwise might be excruciating. I was actually going to ask about that, whether there's anything in the literature or observations that you may have about the value of a parent directing aspects of the play experience versus making it a self, like, like letting it be a self-directed experience for the child. Right. I, I think a little bit, it depends on age. Um, and once again, I, I'm not an expert, but um, some of the literature points out that younger kids especially really benefit from child-centered play. Um, and so in the therapy room, what that looks like is a kid comes into the playroom. I have a, a special playroom that has all sorts of toys um, that they can play with. And I essentially tell them, you can do anything you want in this room. If there's something you can't do, I'll let you know. And essentially, they are allowed to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting themselves or me or um, destroying the building, essentially, or the property. Um, and I think that that is something that parents can recreate um, in, you know, setting up a, a special space, even if it's just, you know, the rug in your living room and allowing the kids to direct that play. And really, you are there to be along for the ride. And so many kids get asked just question after question after question all day long, especially if they're in school. And um, I, I know I catch myself doing this too with uh, my nieces and nephews of just, you know, kids are really cute when they, you ask them questions and they have funny answers. And it's really helpful for kids to be able to kind of be the one directing the play or, or just in charge and not being asked questions, but just having what they're doing reflected to them of, you're driving that car really fast right now. You think it's really funny when 
um, the teddy bear does a flip. You're really enjoying doing this and just being able to show kids, I'm here with you. I see you. I see what you're doing. And this is about you. And that can be really helpful for um, especially younger kids, probably up to about age eight. And then, um, you know, kids' needs change as they get older. And so maybe having more parent-directed activities of um, whether it's going on an outing or um, playing a more directed game that has rules and something with more structure. Um, and I, I think there's there's room and space for both. Um, you know, when kids are older too, they're not gonna want to maybe sit on a rug and play with blocks, but they're still gonna want your time and attention in some way. And um, if you are able to be in tune with them, you'll be able to see and they'll be able to tell you really what they're looking for from you. Um, and lots of times it's just, it's time and attention. And I, I think too, um, just a lot of the things that I talked about for parents, going back to emotion regulation for kids, a lot of the things that I talked about for parents but simplified can be helpful for kids. So with breathing, there's actually a really great book that I love. Um, it's on Amazon. It's called Breathe Like a Bear. And it just teaches a lot of different breathing exercises, mindfulness type exercises through a really cute book. Um, that then, you know, when you read the book and you work through the book with your kids, you can remind them like, hey, breathe like a bear. Um, there's, you know, kids can do square breathing. Another one I like to do working with really little kids is something I call bubble breaths. And it's teaching that when you imagine blowing bubbles, if you want to blow a really big bubble, if you just try to blow it as hard and fast as you can, you're not going to get anything. You know, that's not going to going to work. You're not going to get that big bubble. It, it's that really like slow, concentrated breath that gets that big bubble. And that's the same kind of breathing that kids can remember and do. Um, it, it, it brings up kind of a tangible reminder of what that's like that they can practice. Um, with progressive muscle relaxation, you know, even having kids bottle up all the energy, whether it's anger or nervousness, um, whatever it is to just um, imagine it all going to their fists and squeezing fists really tightly for five minutes and then letting that go and shooting that all out. That's a really easy way to, to kind of work with progressive muscle relaxation. Um, there's lots of charts available on the, on the internet with different faces of emotions. Lots of times, especially younger kids, they don't necessarily have the vocabulary to talk about feelings. And so giving them a visual and letting them point it out can be um, helpful for them. And then also just like parents need a timeout, sometimes kids need a timeout too just to, to get it back together. Um, and that's in a way that's productive and not punishing. So, um, you know, putting a plug in there for my mindful mat, that's a really um, like useful way to take a timeout. And if the language of timeout is triggering for your child, find a phrase that works for you guys, that works for your family, that is going to be able to be helpful and productive. And then also just remembering that, um, you know, if you are an emotional brain, you're not going to be able to teach your kid or work with your kid because it's just going to push them right into that emotion brain as well. Um, and, you know, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with emotion regulation as a family, um, there are resources, family therapy is available. It can be really helpful. Um, 
And then the dialectical behavior therapies that I talked about, there's also groups available for teens. If you have a teen that is um, maybe struggling with emotion regulation. Uh, so there's lots of resources available. Thanks for the plug on my mindful mat. <laughs> oh yeah. It's been, it's been interesting talking with you about some of this as well as you talk about the, you know, the hand model of the brain and the amygdala and the lizard brain and so forth that um, in our own um, research and, you know, we've, we haven't gone through a master's program in any of this and let alone getting accepted into a PhD program. <laughs> but, but we, I do, uh, there was a, a book by um, Daniel Kahneman. I don't know if you've read any of his work. He's more of a behavioral economist mm -hmm. and talk about biases and things like that. And he talks about system one and system two thinking. And that mm -hmm. was something that we latched onto in our observations and employing the mindful map that it really does help in trying to make that jump from, from system one to system two thinking where you're going from more of a, a reactive posture to a proactive posture in responding to a situation. Right. And one thing that um, I think really stuck out as well from, from what you were just explaining is the importance of normalizing the mindfulness activities or whatever mm -hmm. the thing is, is that we're doing. If we as parents, um, certainly if we flip our lid, but if we're reacting to a situation and saying, hey, we need to breathe. And, that, and we only ever do that during a time when our child is feeling stressed or frustrated or we, we're feeling stressed or frustrated. Mm -hmm. And it's going to condition that response to be associated with those more unpleasant moments, right? Right, and right. That's one thing that we encourage with my mindful mat is to make it so that it's a part of a regular practice of mindfulness, that you're not just drawing on those mindfulness skills in a time of crisis, but that you're developing those mindfulness skills as part of how you approach life in general. And that that makes it possible to, um, or like Daniel Tiger, Daniel Tiger's neighborhood has a really good point with this, with um, one of their jingles is to enjoy the wow that's happening now. Mm, and mm -hmm. I love that one because of how much it's about bringing your attention to the present moment and about trying to practice mindfulness in a moment that could be stressful. Daniel has some moments in the show where his mom re recites that to him when he's being frustrated. Mm. Um, but there are also times when, you know, you might be like excited about something that's coming and it's like, well, let's, you know, let's bring it right back to where we're at right now, because right now is a wow moment too. Mm -hmm. And, and making that a part of just your regular day to day makes it possible so that when you are having a difficult moment, that you're not associating the skills that help you navigate those waves with the difficult moments, but rather that it's part of the overall experience of navigating the waves of life broadly, both the, the harder ones as well as the more exciting or, or peaceful or any type of wave that you might be experiencing. Right. And I really like that you bring that up. I think that that's so important. And I, I think it's important to something that I talk to my clients about is when we make these practices kind of part of our daily life, who we are in the moment, you know, we practice these so that they're kind of just natural and mm -hmm. almost become second nature um, because they just become a part of our repertoire. So in the moments that um, they could be especially beneficial, we, we have them down. Um, it's kind of like if you, if you go to a basketball game and you've never touched a basketball before, it's probably not going to be very helpful 
to you to, um, you know, if you've never practiced, you're probably not going to be able to make those shots. And, and so it's really similar, I think, with the skills that we develop that become a part of us. They help us um, in every moment. And then because they are a part of us and what we've practiced, they're there, especially in the moments when we might need them the most. Um, and so they're not a punishment or we don't think that they don't work because we haven't practiced them before, but it's just kind of that why riding the wave of life and having, you know, just more skills to ride the waves, whatever those waves look like, whether they're, um, happy waves, whether they're hard waves, whether they're distressing waves, um, we have those skills for all the moments and we're able to, because of that, enjoy life more fully. Well, and even within those unprecedented times too, I think that gratitude can make a huge difference trying mm -hmm. to frame the situation in a way where we are, are seeking gratitude despite the difficulty um, and in a genuine way that, that that can help to to temper the experience as well, even when it's hard. And that's not to say that you're, you know, ignoring the hard part because it is hard, but, but being able to say, but I'm grateful that I get to do this with these people or I'm grateful that I yeah. get to, to be in, in the situation. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that has been helpful to me personally and something that I work on with my clients is kind of that shift from black and white and either or thinking of either this is really terrible or this is really great to kind of a both and perspective of this is really hard. And there are some things that I'm very grateful for. Mm -hmm. And both of those can exist at the same time, even though it seems like they're competing or that they have to exist separately, they can exist at the same time. And, and that's okay. And that actually, you know, helps us in this increasingly complex world to be able to view our world and our lives more complexly and, and see both sides, both sides instead of just, you know, this is really, really hard. Yeah. I think those skills that you've talked about throughout the whole interview kind of help you be prepared so that when these things come, you can say, yeah, this is hard, but with these skills, now I can sit with it. And so I can turn around and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do with it. Yeah. And, and the, I think the hopeful thing is too, that like we've talked about, these are skills and it's, it's never too late to start learning them. And so, you know, maybe, you feel like you're at your wit's end or maybe you feel like there's no help and you wish you would have learned these skills earlier. You can start now. You can start tonight. You can start tomorrow. There's, there's always an opportunity to learn more and do more and try something new. Um, there's always that space. Um, and I think that's the beautiful thing about mindfulness and emotion regulation is we can start again, we can try again, it's never too late. We'd like to thank Jessica for speaking with us on today's My Mindful Mat moment. We hope that this podcast, as well as resources at mymindfulmat.com, will help all of us become more mindful, intentional parents. If you don't have a My Mindful Mat, you can learn more and order now at MyMindfulMat.com. Other resources and mindfulness activities are available at MyMindfulMat.com. If you have questions or suggestions for future podcast episodes, please share them with us by visiting one of our social media pages or by contacting us at Coriaria.com. 
That's C-O-R-I-A-R-I-A.com. Thank you for joining us for a My Mindful Map moment today.